You are listening to the Quite Useless Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Quite Useless Podcast. My name's Jordan Shaw and Erin McAvoy is not here. Um, she's don't worry. She's she's not dead. She's not ill, as far as I know. I saw her uh, last week, and um, she was in perfect health, uh, and actually doing very well. She's doing um, very busy with her her band, uh, Mandulu and Hepsiba, um, and they're so busy with all their gigs and, and recording and stuff just now that she's decided to to step back, unfortunately, from hosting the podcast. Um, but we'll get her back on soon uh, as a guest. She can come on with uh, her her. Um, co-musician Sabrina uh, maybe play some songs and, and talk about what she's uh, what she's up to but it's good that she's busy well, it's, sorry to lose her but it's good that um, she's getting out there and uh, loving the loving the dream um, I on the other hand yeah we have <laughs> have, we have no plans step, stepping into the into the Erin McAvoy shaped void we have uh, that other voice that you can hear um, she's an actress and a, a musician uh, vaguely, well, vaguely musician. Yeah, she can play the ukulele. Uh, dad taught pian pianist, uh, and now juggler. Yeah. Um, please welcome popular Ronnie. Hiya. I'm sure everyone is clapping right now. <laughs> yeah, everybody's home. thrilled. They're all delighted to hear you. The one and only popular Ronnie. Yeah. Literally the one and only popular Ronnie. Aren't you? I don't think as far as I'm aware, yeah, You've it's not too common a name. None of my family have somebody in it called Poppy other than me. So. Poppy's kind of like obviously not Laroni, but Poppy's quite a popular name. It's getting yeah. I think it was people. I get really mixed reactions to it because people either think I'm from tons of money, or my parents were high when they named me. That's the two reactions I tend to get. Is Poppy a particularly bourgeois name? Apparently, so apparently it used to be like not quite royal, but it was very upper class to have the name Poppy. But oh. we're talking like much earlier and. 1900s yeah because some, sometimes I think about your name and like the more I think about it the more ridiculous it seems it is like quite poppy like it's like almost onomatopoeic yeah like, like pop, like pop. well that's if you google well I've googled myself and because uh, my uncle Stephen produces pop songs mm-hmm. if you google poppy Lurone it'll come up with Stephen Lurone produced poppy track Whatever, so... It's a good name for it. I've seen a lot of dogs called Poppy. Yes, that's a fact. I lived <laughs> next to a dog called Poppy and it was very, very infuriating. It was like the summer that I lived in this one flat in Paisley. It was like, Poppy, Poppy! And I was like, what? <laughs> Looking around all the time. Never met a dog called Jordan, though. No. Have you ever come across... I think it would be quite a good name for a dog. Because I quite like it for a... Yeah, for a dog, like a, like a big dog. Thank you. And of course, you, with your curly hair and your beard, that would... You just need a curly yeah. dog. Some people say I look a bit like a lion. Imagine a lion called Jordan. Sure. Like it, it it would be, be a wee lion cub. As yeah, opposed to it like wouldn't a, be the king lion. It wouldn't be like Mufasa level. It's much more uh, Simba tier. Or even Kovu. Yeah, you're not a Lion King fan, actually. No. You shouldn't talk about that. You won't have seen the second Lion King. No. In which this is a little I, Well, I probably have seen it, but I've got no recollection. I don't really remember what happens in the first other than it's based on Hamlet yeah. so quite loosely there are no lines uh-huh, they did a third one uh, it's called Lion King one and a half 
It's really, really good. It went, it went straight to DVD, but it is the... <laughs> yeah, you, you can laugh, but it is the best straight to DVD film that Disney have ever done. And it's like Rosen, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. So okay. Made, sort of yeah, based on the Hamlet. Tom Stoppard? Yeah, uh-huh. and it's Timon and Pumbaa are in the cinema watching The Lion King. And then they go, oh, this is rubbish, we're not in it. And, and, then, it, and then it takes you to like what Timon and Pumbaa were doing like, during the other events in the film that they're not in. That's quite good. And it is actually That's sort of quite impressive. funny, funny oh, yeah. and interesting. Yeah. Much better than the Lion King TV series. The other TV series on Disney. Really? You won't have seen that yet. No. That wasn't up to much. I can't imagine it would be. Because they make TV series out of animated films all the time. They're doing one on. They've done one on Home that they released last year. It was an animated one by might have been DreamWorks. I don't know. Um, but Rihanna was on it. Okay. It wasn't very good. Was it a musical like most? Um... Mm, no, I wouldn't call it a musical. I don't think it had music in it. It wasn't people singing randomly, as we will talk about later. Should we? Should we get started? Sure. Well, first up on the menu, uh, by your request, uh, it's the, the awards season. It's awards season. Yeah. Has come up. Um, people want validation for the bits of art <laughs> that they've made. Fair enough. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, they get plenty of financial validation. Of know, course, these but. Um, uh, but the Golden Globes have just been. Yeah, it was hosted by Jimmy Fallon this year, which I can imagine would be quite a laugh. He is my favourite male. Late night tacos. Yeah. Yes. I find him a bit, bit unctuous, a bit ingratiating. He's, he's a bit of clappy. He is very clappy. I think he finds himself very funny, but I also find myself <laughs> very funny, so I quite enjoy when somebody's having a good time. Um. But yeah, we quite. I think he would be quite good to host. Yeah, I'm sure. And the other Jimmy, chat show host Kimmel is doing the Oscars. Yeah, I'm not thrilled. <laughs> I like him. I'm not a fan of Jimmy Kimmel. No, no. no it's because I watch everything online. And Jimmy Kimmel, at the end of his YouTube videos, he's like, did you enjoy that? Yeah. And it's so condescending. I really, for that reason alone, I don't like him. And then I find, I find him quite brutal in interviews. But I have a funny feeling that's how I would come off interviewing someone as opposed to brutal. Jimmy Fallon. Well, he's kind of, um, he was a protege of David Letterman. Kimmel? Yeah, who I always found quite, uh, he could be a bit, not rude, but you know, he, he wasn't like uh, Jimmy Fallon, where he's uh-huh. like sort of pandering to his guests. You know? but, and that's the thing, I think like, I mean, the people that, you know, the actors that go and promote movies and the musicians that go about and go and promote all their stuff, all their work, like you're answering the same stuff mm. over and over and over again. So I do really like a talk show that puts that makes it a bit more exciting. There must be nothing worse than talking to somebody who doesn't seem thrilled about the work that you're doing. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, it's, it's quite nice to have yeah. someone to celebrate you, um, as he often does. And also it's rehearsed as well, but they'll have done that before. Yeah, but that's what I find quite weird, because it's, it's only been in the last like year or so I've started realising that they talk about the kind of pre-interview mm. interview, and it's... I think I would... I mean, obviously it's necessary, because you don't want somebody to ask you a question you can't answer. I think as well, um, Graham Norton always gets praise from Americans, especially because they're not used to his style for being like the best talk show host. And I think he is the best talk show host in America. I've recently but... got very into him. Yeah. I find him very funny. 
Um, and it always feels so sort of natural. Like yeah, together. And then it's kind of like, so he's got his cards and then he's like, mm, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. <laughs> like he'll happily just go off in a big, big rant. And Craig Ferguson as well, who's my favourite American talk show was he actually whenever he would come out to do an interview at the start every interview he had the cards and he would rip them up and throw them away to sort of signify that his was a bit right. different and he, he was really good I watched a you know that um, YouTuber nerd writer one yes he does those excellent sort of videos uh-huh. analysing art and culture and stuff yeah. he just did one on Craig Ferguson okay I'll maybe give that a watch because mm-hmm. I watched the one he did on Sherlock yeah uh. he's done one on, on a Bon Iver song Ooh, if you've seen that yeah no, we're going to be not. talking about Bon Iver later in the episode but yeah I can't remember the song but it's really good and it? it's um, if you look him up on YouTube it's Nerdwriter 1 and he, he takes apart the song um, into tiny pieces and looks at what this bit is doing and then how he, how he sort of inverts that and maybe I have seen that I think it's Holocene it might be yeah I think it's Holocene because it's about the, repeat, the repeated tunes and then yeah, yeah each bit the, the, the one about Sherlock the newest season of Sherlock was fantastic it was about how um, they convey the train of thought, mm-hmm. um, and I'd seen another one about how it's that they do the best um, text on screen, the most kind of integrated. But uh, this one was about the train of thought, and then I just watched Graham Norton of uh, Benedict Cumberbatch talking about when he's doing that kind of thing, he has to memorise it and then just know it so well that he can just blurt it out and not even think about it because it's all to happen exactly as it's being said right he says the thoughts as soon as he thinks them so mm-hmm. yeah it's quite interesting I that can imagine it would be quite hard to do the idea behind Marlon Brando's acting style if you can call it style obviously it was very frustrating for the director because he couldn't learn his lines uh-huh. but his idea between not, um, behind not learning his lines was that he wanted them to be fresh and he wanted to, them to come out as if his character was just thinking them on the spot I think it depends how you learn lines, though, because I learn lines by writing them down mm-hmm. repeatedly. Well, this is what Anthony Hopkins does as well. He's like the opposite and learns them inside out. Yeah, I'm very much for learn every word as it was written, unless I really don't like how it was written, <laughs> which is rare. But if something just doesn't roll off the tongue, then it kind of has to be changed. But I'm yeah, I'm very much prescribed to the write everything down, and then I sit with Martha and uh, go over. She could understudy any part in any play I took because she's heard it about eight times. I did help my little sister with her lines in her, her first play. She was um, the playing the starring antagonist, the Candy King, and um, a little Christmas show that she did with, <laughs> with her lines. She was very, very proud to have the most lines in the whole show. <laughs> Is this your youngest sister? Yeah, Abby. yeah, yeah. She did very well and remembered every line. The family's all very proud. Yeah. But back to the Golden Globes. Um, so Golden did, Globe for Abby as the... Yeah, well, I'm sure, yeah. That, <laughs> was a, that was a first. I got her to sign the programme and everything. <laughs> that would be worth quite a bit. I can imagine finish. you'd be quite a good brother, Jordan. <laughs> um, so what did you what did you think about the the winners and, and losers? Yeah, um, it was quite a diverse winners list, which mm-hmm. is good for representation. Well, I mean, it's diverse even in... An art form, isn't it? The yeah, so the Golden Globes is the the only main one that crosses over between film and television. Um, the Emmys is purely television, and the Oscars are purely film. So it's quite nice to have a an award show where everybody comes together and actors and directors talk about it like it's one of the most fun because everybody just gets 
horrendously drunk hmm. sits around at these big tables and has a good night so or maybe it benefits from being sort of a step below the Oscars that it's not got yeah I think it attention. probably does but also having the, the benefit of reviewing those films at the same time mm-hmm. whereas the Emmys kind of everybody in TV is really excited about the Emmys but it, it doesn't get quite as much attention as, as the Oscars um, so best motion picture is that's divided into I'm looking at it on, on Wikipedia right now yes so that's divided into two categories yep uh, musical and comedy and drama Yes. And the winner of drama was Moonlight. Yeah, so that's the, the story of the young gay black man who... It's a, it's a kind of coming out story. Uh, that um, Moonlight got six nominations, actually. Um, which was one below La La Land, which won uh, the best musical or comedy. Um, yeah, La La Land walked away with a total of seven wins, which is... Deserve it. We both saw it last night. Um, Did you watch it last night as well? I didn't realise it was last night. Yeah, oh wow! Just watched it. Um, Unplanned. I wh- can assure what did you, you think? I enjoyed it. I thought it was quite a slow start. I thought the title, the to the big opening song, for paying kind of homage to the old twentieth century Fox MGM mm. grand musicals. I didn't think it quite had the vocal quality in the chorus that a lot of those old um, musicals had. but And I think it took them a while to establish the story, but once they did, I was pretty hooked. I really loved Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. I thought they were brilliant. I think Emma Stone particularly. What I loved most about the movie was the way it was shot. Mm-hmm. Everything looked so beautiful. Like You could take a picture of any frame and it would be something stunning to look at. Yeah, it was and, directed by Damien Chazelle. Yeah, who, who also won for best screenplay um, mm. and who, who directed uh, Whiplash which was in 2015 yes. which was equally sort of gorgeous and uh-huh. well shot um, yeah what I thought about the that opening opening um, sort of song and dance number is where they're, they're in a it's a big traffic jam on the, on the highway um, <laughs> and they ever people get out of their cars and, and sing and dance and stuff and at that point I thought I'm not sure I'm going to like this because yeah. I don't really like musicals but, Whereas I'm a big fan of musicals, yeah. as long as they're not sung the whole way through, like Les Mis or any of the Andrew Lloyd Webber ones, I'm not a huge fan of, but I, I do generally enjoy musicals. But it didn't quite grab me, that first opening number, and then I think it slowly built into something I was thoroughly enjoying. Mm-hmm. Well, what I thought was weird about that bit, not bad weird, but just a little different, was that when whenever you watch musicals that are in that kind of style where everyone's singing and dancing and happy and stuff... It kind of you kind of buy into it a bit more immediately because it's in a world that is although although it might be similar to to the modern day it it feels a little different like it's either different uh, you know it's distant in time or it's in a different place or yeah I've not really noticed that before but that is true like LA has to be you know something we see mm. people who are involved in arts and culture a lot like it's not a too far away land we know generally what it looks like we know that they're always in traffic jams and musicals are normally set in a different time or something that you don't normally see quite as much and that did kind of sum up where the film went it was about putting this sort of classical song and dance musical spirit into what was quite a 
everyday relationship, really, apart from the, the fact that they were both pursuing careers in the entertainment industry, which most of us don't. It was quite a simple story and one that anyone could sort of relate to. Yeah, I think as um actor, I yeah. did deeply resonate with Emma Stone's breakdown. There's a beautiful line where she says, um, well, she gets a, an audition and at that point she's given up in the movie. It's kind of her big classic blowout meltdown and he tells her she's got this audition and she decides that she can't go because this might kill me and I just that really hit home as <laughs> somebody who's trying to get additions and trying to keep going that kind of real hurt that you could see in her there I really thoroughly enjoyed she was excellent wasn't she yeah just all round I had a friend say that she was the one you can't take your eyes off of the whole time and I totally hmm. Agreed with that. I think she's often like that. Even I haven't seen her in a whole lot of things, but even something like Birdman, where she she only had a relatively small part, she really stood out, and she was absolutely the star of this film. She won best uh, best performance in a musical or comedy for the Golden Globes as well. Yeah, which I think was and she's deserved. Well, actually, so does he. Uh-huh. Uh, Ryan Gosling well that's yeah so that's it? and then the other ones just to total off the, the seven awards that they got were best original score and that was Justin Hurwitz and best original song for City of Stars hmm. that was the one that recurred a few times yeah that kind of motif throughout the yeah. film but one of the things that I, I don't really like about musicals is I feel that they can often be a lot more sort of glitz over actual substance I think they can lack a little emotional weight and depth and complexity but this absolutely had that which I think is given from the fact that they were actors before they were dancers and singers mm. other than Ryan Gosling who was kind of hip hop street of dance he didn't really dance much though there's one sequence where they're at night and they're sitting on a bench and they do it a lot of dancing but there's not a whole lot of dancing in it it's mostly singing no and I was that's the the sequence they they played the most I think to promote the film and I was quite disappointed that there was a lack of that from from Ryan Gosling particularly, it was more of him playing the piano mm-hmm. which he learned to do for the film Well that scene was very old fashioned the, the film wasn't quite all like that it, it didn't feel like it was made in the 20s I mean the main thing they kind of kept was the style of the music and the costume which I really liked because I mean all the costumes Emma Stone wore were stuff that people could wear today. Mm-hmm. Ryan Gosling's suits were a bit more of the period. It just made me want to dress smart <laughs> about the place and like look cool all the time. Even the music as well. It was about jazz, just like uh, Damage's or Whiplash. Uh-huh. It was also it was obviously a fan of jazz. Yeah, clearly. Um, and it it looked at the sort of relationship between um, sort of traditional jazz which Ryan Gosling was really into and then like jazz fusion uh, which I think John Legend made a really good point of he's also in the movie and he kind of plays a old friend of Ryan Gosling he doesn't particularly get along with but he made a point about how Ryan Gosling was clinging to this old traditional jazz and that's why it was dying out because if you love something so much that you don't want to touch it then it's never going to grow and stay alive which I think was kind of a metaphor for the movie as well it was a, a hint to that MGM grand musical mm. but it was updated 
It was difficult because you, know, you, although you obviously automatically sympathise with Ryan Gosling's character, who's one all about focusing on pure jazz and bringing that back and making that popular, you also kind of felt that John Lynch's character had a point, and that people, you know, people weren't interested in that. Totally. To find some way to modernise it. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of that in the film. You, I think you, you weren't quite sure who, who was in the right. People were, were fighting and stuff, and it, as far as it, you know, it was like that. It, it felt really realistic. Completely, and it didn't also, I don't feel like it completely made an effort to conclude any of those arguments. Because Ryan Gosling ended up opening up his traditional jazz club, but he never completely admonished the fact that jazz fusion was a thing. It was very much, yeah, okay, I've done that part, and now I'm going to go back to do what I originally wanted to do. It wasn't too much about, well, I'm right, so mm-hmm. screw you. I'm going to go and open my club. I think it was it was quite open-ended. You were allowed to have your own opinion. I mean, it was all about that struggling artist trying to make it. And I think what was the clearest thing about the whole film was that they were both just really passionate about what they do. Mm. That was... I mean, that showed when Emma Stone breaks down into tears in that edition. It shows when he's constantly rewinding the the record to try and figure out the exact notes and the exact timing of when they're played like it was just mm. full of passion I think that the fundamental conflict throughout the whole film was between that passion for their dream and, and their career and, and what they wanted to do with their life and their, their passion for their relationships and personal lives and then making the choice between those two things which yeah was ultimately their downfall yeah, well, without wanting to spoil it. Yeah, I'll leave yeah, it there. But, that. I mean, I did think the end, without ruining it, was very confusing and then excellent. <laughs> yeah. It, I think that the film was quite traditional and quite conventional. Um, and this, well, not the film, uh, the story. And it was quite, um, quite predictable and quite simple. But... I think the way they, they tied it up and also the way they told it was really quite extraordinary. It was Yeah. Yeah. Completely. And I think that's something that more people need to do. If people just put energy into making like a short, excellent love story, simple, you know, person meets person, fall in love, there's some sort of heartbreak, get back together. That if you can do that well, then you can progress to anything. Mm. Because there's so many things you can do with it. Yeah, because it's something that everyone can sort of relate to. Yeah. But aside from the the people that won all the all the awards at the the Golden Globes, um, the the probably the main story that came out of it um, that was being talked about far more than who won best motion picture and stuff was Meryl Streep's speech at the end, uh, or was it the end actually? I don't know. I didn't watch it. But I heard about the. Yeah, I don't actually know whether it was the end or not. I have a funny. It probably was. She was uh, awarded the Cecile B. DeMille Award for um, a lifetime achievement in the arts, and used it as an opportunity to to call out the soon to be. We're recording this on the last day of Obama's presidency, so we're about to be in Trump land. Yeah. You say she called him out, but she didn't actually mention him. 
But that's how powerful Meryl she, Streep is. We know what she was talking about, but I, I mean, it's something that's kind of split people's opinions on it. Some people are very much, go, go Meryl, yeah, if you, you tell them. And it's also made some people very, very cross. I don't know how I felt about it. I, uh, I, I felt it was kind of, it was a bit sort of sanctimonious and elitist. I've, yeah, I've read similar things, but I've also read the, the counter argument to people saying that, because it's, I mean, so a lot of people say that she's in this bubble of Hollywood and yeah. she's in the left-wing bubble of people who believe the same views as hers and she shouldn't be using the fact that she won an award to start talking about who a nation voted for to be their president in a bad light. But this is, which I think is what she talks about here as well. It's, um, in the speech, she rattles off a list of where all the nominees or big um, actresses and actors in Hollywood came from. And I think it's to prove that everybody came from everywhere, from different backgrounds, and they didn't start in this bubble and they didn't always live in this bubble. But I don't know how much her speech was, was counterproductive, because although she was trying to convey this idea of that everyone is from, from different places, I think what she actually tended to do was sort of close that down and make make it more of a bubble. You know, she said, you you and all of us in this room belong to the most vilified segments in American society right now, which is, it's hard to, if you're watching that, you know, as a, as a working class person in America to sort of sympathise with, you know, Meryl Streep in this um, Hollywood, you know, with all the, all the stars and stuff to, to think that she's the most vilified portion of, of American society. And mm-hmm. I think it, it maybe marked out that difference between them in a way that she didn't quite intend to do. She also um, decided to sort of criticise things like MMA and, and American football, or football, um, which I think may be counterproductive to her aims, because she's a, she was rather dismissive of something that lots and lots of people really like. Jordan really likes MMA, to fill you in. <laughs> I do, but... No, but I mean, like, football is, is the most popular sport in America. Um, I think her, her criticism of football was more fair than MMA. MMA is just as um, diverse as, as America, as um, as Hollywood. But I think um, she was saying that these things aren't arts, which I think is an argument that you, you can make, but she made it in such a sort of dismissive way. What do you think about her using that opportunity to, to speak about political views, about artists using their platform to advocate? I th- kind of think that's the whole point. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people are like, that's just your opinion, you happen to play a role in a film and that doesn't mean that you've got the right to talk about whatever, but so many organisations wouldn't even exist without the support of celebrities or not even but I mean there's I mean there's countless celebrities who aren't even household names that still use their money and their time to support I mean there's YouTube stars that do that and it's I think a lot of people are just wanting to help and when you've got the money and you've got the platform you kind of feel an obligation to do so I think there's maybe an argument to be made that if you have the opportunity to speak on behalf of a cause that you believe in that you have a duty to do that I don't think you can as much as you might go oh well I don't really care what Mel Seep think she's just an actor I think you, she she's at liberty to, to share her opinions if she has the, the opportunity to do so yeah I mean she's not saying that everybody should agree with her that's not the point of the speech it's to mm. call out something that she's not okay with and she knows that other people have the same opinion. Did you read this story yesterday about um, 
Lady Gaga has been told that she's not allowed to mention politics when she plays at the Super Bowl this year. No. I can understand why, because I think we're going to hear a lot about politics over the next four years. But that's um, why it's exciting. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many people are so deeply upset that Trump won that all we can do is talk about it and use the sadness and fear and anger at Trump's election as a tool to protest and to actually force change by a collective movement. And I think that comes from celebrities using their platform to go point your attention to the right the right sources. And I think censoring that at the Super Bowl, which is one of the most widely watched sporting events in the US, was wrong. Well, I can understand that their reluctance to allow her to speak politically. Um, you know, if you are, I, I'm not sure of the body that the organised, what's the NFL, that organises the Super Bowl, they have, as you say, it's, it's the most watched sporting event in the US. People watch it of all different political persuasions and they don't want to alienate the people that are watching it who might like Trump. Yeah, I mean, from the NFL point of view, I completely understand. (laughs) But as an artist, like... But then I don't even know, really, how much chance she would have to speak about politics. Between songs. That's when she usually does it, I think. (laughs) I know, but I mean, it's a very tight... I mean, it has to be a tight-running show. It's not only just her. There's a bunch of other musicians that do it, so... Should you get a flag or something? Yeah. The NFL are, you know, they've got the right to to set any kind of stipulations that they want, but nonetheless, people are, are making, uh, artists are making a stand against Donald Trump. Uh, you see this, uh, there's an anti-inauguration concert. Yes. That's going on. And everybody refused to play at his yeah. inauguration, yeah. Everybody. Well, I mean, there's a couple of people that are doing it and everybody's like, well... Yes, what I think, think it's essentially three doors down at this stage, that's it. Mm. Um... It's kind of sad when a when a Bruce Springsteen tribute band pull out. <laughs> That's a bit pathetic. Did you um, read there was a a suggestion on Tumblr that uh, Barack Obama resigns on his last day so that Joe Biden can be the forty fifth president <laughs> and all the Donald Trump merchandise will have the wrong number on it because he'll be the forty sixth president. Is that how that would work? Yeah, I mean, because I mean, Joe. Well, Joe Biden would be president for a day giving him the 45th president title well um, it's now 2 o'clock on the 19th so he's got he's got a few hours left I do wonder how this period will be looked back on I imagine the next I don't want to talk too much about politics but the next four years are going to be quite eventful yeah um, well I hope they're eventful I hope it's it's come and it's forced folk to to realise that they need to take action so we've talked about the, the awards that have been given but there are some that are yet to be to be awarded. The Grammys is coming up. The nominations, most of them are, are Beyonce, I think. Uh, and in my opinion, deservedly so. Her uh, Lemonade was her album that came out uh, last year. Yeah, in case you've been living under a rock, uh, <laughs> Lemonade was a Beyonce album that had a visual aspect to it as well as the audio. I didn't watch the visual thing. No, me neither. No, but the album, audio-wise, was, was excellent. I think it pretty much deserves to all the plaudits that it's got she's she's nominated for everything um, as well as what the best album is Adele as well yeah Adele's also nominated for record of the year um, as is Beyonce so it's a hello information uh, respectively Ad- album of the year is 25 Lemonade Purpose Justin Bieber that was rubbish 
in, views. My, in my opinion. <laughs> Um, there's a couple. I mean, there was a couple of the Justin Bieber singles that I thought were quite catchy and relatively well made. Yeah, there was one that I, I really really liked, and then I was like, oh, "This is great! This sounds like an Ed, Ed Sheeran song." And then I looked it up, and Ed Sheeran had written it. But yeah, I wasn't really impressed with that album at all. Uh, I, I, I find it so bland. The, the music. Yeah, so that was "Love Yourself." Yeah, was no, written by. Quite liked that. Which I quite thought. I mean, it was very much in his style but I quite liked um, Churches did a cover of What Do You Mean which is brilliant I think it's quite catchy pop music yeah I mean what I kind of found frustrating about the Grammys is that the, the award although they have awards for different sort of genres for rock and rap and things like that they also have an overall song of the year or album of the year or record of the year and these ones are always like really sort of mainstream pop which is fine, but I mean, in the case of Beyonce, for instance, hers is just a pop album at its heart, although it incorporates a whole load of different influences. It absolutely deserves to be there. But the, there's a lot of other things that are nominated in these categories. They're, they're nowhere near as good as a lot of the albums that are nominated in other categories. Song of the Year, for instance, you've got Formation, Beyonce, Hello, Adele, I Took a Pill and Ibiza, uh, which is Mike Posner. Love Yourself, Justin Bieber, and Seven Years, which is a uh, Lucas Graham, which I must say, infuriates me no end because it's so repetitive. Yeah, I'm not a fan, but the, I mean the idea that I suppose it's really really popular, but it's not a better song I don't think than, than so many other songs that have been made this year. I mean it is a I'm... matter of opinion, and I think when we're talking about, I mean a lot of the bands we like are not your capital FM playlist. It's just uh, it's a um, question of popularity. Yeah, I, I mean, it does very much seem that this category is. Well, it can't be most popular song of the year, but it is. It's, it seems that this category, although it, the title claims as as overall and it encompasses all music, it does seem to be only really really popular music that gets in it. Yeah, so best new artist, the the nominees, ones that I know anyway, are Chainsmokers and Chance the Rapper. And so the Chainsmokers have that brilliantly produced song and then Chance the Rapper was born out of this uh, collective in... I feel like it was Chicago, but I'm not entirely sure. And it's just a bunch of like artists and poets kind of coming together and making tracks together and it's really really quite nice. Yeah, he's great. I think he should win it. His own... Or it was, it was a mixtape. I'm not really sure of the difference. Um... <laughs> But his mixtape uh, colouring book this year was really wonderful. He also appeared on um, The Life of Pablo, Kanye West's new album, and he had he was in the first song, uh, Ultra Light Beam. Right. It was probably the best bit of the song. So I, I hope he wins that. Yeah, I really like his Sunday Candy song. That's just like really catchy and happy, and I think that's a brilliant, brilliant song with a really nice um, chorus. All Night as well. We had a song called All Night, and I'm surprised that that didn't get nominated for, for Song of the Year. Because um, that was really, really good and sort of poppy. And, well, we can play a bit of it. This is, uh, this is All Night by Chance the Rapper. Everybody high five, everybody wanna smile, everybody wanna lie, that's nice, no. 
It's good, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite nice. <clears throat> it's um, <coughs> sorry, I've got crisp stuck in my throat. <laughs> it's had some, had some crisp while we played this song. Yeah, there's a song on um, Lemonade called All Night as well. So yeah, I quite like that song. That's good. That's not nominated either. My other favourite one is Daddy Lessons off Lemonade. Is that the country one? Yeah, mm-hmm. which she played live at the Country Music Awards with Dixie Chicks. Oh. Fantastic video if you've not seen it. It's really, really good. And they hadn't released music for ages. It's really, it's a really great recording of Daddy Lessons. Really, really brilliant. And the crowd just goes mental for it. So that was one of the things that I really liked about that album. That it incorporated a whole bunch of different styles and did them really, really well. Oh. We're recording. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're recording in, in the studio, uh, and I use that word quite wrongly. Uh, in my flat in the middle of Glasgow, so uh, someone's just arrived at the door. And if you can hear any background noise, that yeah, that's because we're next to the two busiest streets in the city. I don't think it's too bad, but like if a if a police car or something goes by, I think you can hear the siren pretty clearly. Yeah. On the, but we're not expecting any crime today, so it'll probably be okay. It's a Thursday afternoon. Yeah, it should be okay. How many robberies happen on Thursday? Well, I mean, when I say on its ground level, there's ambulances go by, I mean, two or three times a day. So You really pronounce that second A in ambulances? I know, I, I noticed that you myself. you not usually do that? No, ambulances. <laughs> if anything, I change it to an I. Ambulance. <laughs> but to, to go back to um, the Beyonce album, there's a, a brilliant SNL sketch with Emily Blunt when she was on SNL and it's she's fantastic it's her um, and the rest of the girls on SNL do a version of Sorry but it's from the woman in Trump's life (laughs) if you haven't seen it you need yeah so it's like (laughs) what's his wife Melania Melania that's how I see it and then it's um, you know his press woman Mm -hmm. and his daughters and it's the most fantastic video it's Honestly, hysterical, and it's shot very much like Beyonce shot. Uh, sorry, so very good. Yeah, on, ne- on the next podcast, we're going to need to talk about the inauguration concert. <laughs> yeah, or lack thereof. Um. The real arts event of the year. <laughs> it might be brilliant. We don't know. Um, shall we move on to talk about Bon Iver? Yeah, so Bon Iver really 22 a Million is nominated for Best Alternative Music Album at the Grammys. As well, it should be. That category is really strong. Yeah, so we've got Black Star, David Bowie, The Hope Six Demolition Project, PJ Harvey, Pop, Post Pop Depression, Iggy Pop, and a Moon Shaped Pool Radiohead. So it is quite a quite a good category. Yeah, I've heard all of them, and they're all really good. I think uh, I'd I'd like Black Star to win it. I think it's probably the best album, but Bon Iver's would be a second. I'm sorry. Bon Iver's Pop, my clear favorite. Poppy's making a sad face that <laughs> Um, but yeah, that is an excellent album. I think if David Bowie hadn't been so such a wonderful person, then Bon Iver would definitely be winning. What, what did you think about Bon Iver though? I loved it. I thought it was a real... Uh, so the first time, I mean, we listened to the, the singles that were released at the same time, and that was Oversoon and Death Breast. There's not really much point in trying to pronounce the names of the art. No, it's very difficult. Because they're filled with weird punctuation and stuff. You can't really say them. But the first two songs in the album... Were the the two singles that were released. And I immediately loved them. And then the first time I listened to the album the whole way through... crime happening out there. Hope everyone's okay. (laughs) Um, 
yeah, so my friend and I took a drive uh, to listen to the the album in its entirety, uninterrupted, and thoroughly enjoyed it. However, it's so different to what he's done before. He, they, um, the Bon Iver Collective, because the first the first thing they released was the EP, the Blood Bank EP, mm-hmm. and then moved on to Forever Forever Ago, which I've described before and will continue to describe. As an album you listen to at night when you're going to sleep. And then the next album was Bon Iver, Bon Iver, self-titled. And I would describe that as an album to wake up to. And those two albums specifically, they, I mean, all the tracks merged together. Whereas they really move away from that in 22 a million. Yeah, they're quite marked transitions between songs. I, I mean, particularly the first and second. The first yeah. one is very vocal heavy and very kind of harmonic. And then you're immediately struck with this really heavy drum section in, in the next song, so... Did that, that did contribute to the sort of fractured feel of the whole album? I think there's... I don't know, there's something about his first couple albums that um, they both have different sort of sound qualities to them, but that they're all quite... I don't want to say relaxing, because that's probably an insult to any kind of music, but sort of enjoyable and nice to listen to. Yeah. But this one, there were points of discomfort, I think. Definitely. I think the... Uh, other than this album, you know, his previous work is very much kind of... You can flow into it and you can tell that there's a deep sadness to the, the music and the writing that, you know, clearly comes from Vernon. But this one seemed to really be about conflict because it was so jarring all the time. I think the other albums you really had that kind of it was all one sense of something it was all like one kind of big emotion that had different complexities but it was that kind of entirety that he was trying to get across whereas is this I feel is much different to that it's very kind of jumping all over the place yeah certainly there's a lot going on in terms of sounds whereas you know with his first album for instance this one where he, he went into a a cabin in the woods in, in Wisconsin and recorded it Which there. is now called April Base and they've built the studio there. Oh, I see. Yeah, so that's where um, the Staves recorded their second album there and Volcano Choir recorded there. And I think that's where the second Bon Iver album was recorded. And even the third one as well, I think it was recorded there, but he made that, I think he got the idea for the uh, Over Soon, the first track on the album when he was in Greece. And I, he discovered a new piece of technology that could record in a specific way that became the core of the whole album I think you should write a biography or something I know well I mean I was only to reading other interviews with him but I, I do find it very fascinating how he makes music we were going to see him in, um, in February at uh, was it the Playhouse in the, Edinburgh yeah the Edinburgh Playhouse yeah and he cancelled which is a deep sadness. We saw him, what, in 2012? Yeah, we've never uh, had to complain to him. We've never seen him. I know. Just an idiot for not buying tickets. Well, when we saw him, and when was it, 2013? 2012. 2012 at the Usher Hall um, in Edinburgh, front row. It was really good. To see that live is just fantastic. Because mm. it changes, and that's the other thing. It's like... I'm kind of nervous about seeing huge bands live or huge singers live, say Beyonce or Taylor Swift, any kind of big pop stars. I'd be quite nervous to see live because it seems that they're quite loath to change. Whereas 
I mean, Beyonce, for instance, dances most of her shows as opposed to sings them. Yeah. She's got so many backup singers that they end up kind of singing the song while she dances on stage like with a group of dancers, which is great. It's something fantastic to watch. But I am going to a gig to hear the music live and to hear them explain what the song's about or just to sing it in a different way and it's how they feel like singing at that time which I think Vernon really does with, with all his tracks. I think also partly that might be to do with with the kind of size of venue that these people are playing that you kind of need some kind of visual element to make sure that everyone is is enjoying it and appreciating it because you need something big so that the people at the back can see it. Which is kind of why I was feeling somewhat apprehensive about going to see Justin Vernon and the Playhouse, or Bonnevere and the Playhouse, because it's really, really big. Mm-hmm. Um, it was all seated, though. Yeah. So, and I think it's kind of, I mean, it's, I think it has to do with the style of music as well and how popular it is and what, because I think, I mean, the audience that go and see Bonnevere are very different to the audience that would go and see Taylor Swift or... I'd go and see Taylor Swift. I would go and see Taylor Swift as well, <laughs> but I think it's a different kind of concert. You know what you're going for. Do you know what I mean? But I think, given, you know, you were saying the size of the venue, I mean, I went to see Florence and the Machine at the Hydro. To be fair, she didn't sell out. They had to close the top tier. But she's so electric on stage anyway. I mean, she's away in the clouds most of the time. It was like a really fascinating gig regardless of where you were sitting in it. and she sang every note and she's got the most stunning powerful voice because it goes so high and so low and it just sounded fantastic the hydro is really really good for yeah you know uh, although it's big it's, it's you can see regardless of where you sit you can see yeah everything i've never actually seen a concert in there all i've seen is wrestling right um but it worked really well for that although uh-huh. i mean it's an even smaller space that you're focusing on because you're just focusing on a ring mm-hmm. and you can see everything perfectly i'd definitely go and see someone in the in the hydro i wouldn't have gone to see when the, when seccc was the biggest venue in glasgow no i, I, I never went a for a, a gig in the seccc but i've seen churches and florence and machine at the hydro and i thought both were fantastic i saw steps in the seccc remember steps <laughs> yes Five, six, seven, eight. My boobs getting babies driving me crazy. Yep. They did chain reaction and all that stuff. Did they and do then... tragedy? Oh, yeah, I'm sure they did, yeah. Tragedy. It was their gold tour when they did uh-huh. their best. Well, gold was, I mean, it was the only album that I actually remember. But... That was a great set. Yeah. They had like three albums before did that. Did they? Yeah. Step, like Step Up, I think it was called. I don't know. And they were all based around steps and <laughs> stepping. Second place. Uh, are they not uh, reviving? Uh, well, they did revive for like a uh, ITV show, I think. I think I read something recently that they were coming back. I don't know. I'm not dying to have them back. I think the Steps season has has been and gone. Yeah, I'm just looking again back at the the nominations for the Grammys. The best R&B performance, Solange is nominated for Cranes in the Sky. Solange being Beyonce's yeah. lesser known sister, who she released her album this year. And there was a really fascinating interview with her and she was being interviewed by Beyonce. I haven't heard that album, but it's supposed to be really, really good. Yeah, I've heard bits and pieces of it and I've really enjoyed it. And it's very much like Lemonade, she's really making a statement. She had a concept for the album and she produces all her own music as well. Alright, so moving on from music, um, Netflix have just released a new, the latest series of their original creations, which was, you know, really, really good. I think Netflix is... But it's definitely going to change the, the sort of TV landscape. But yeah, I mean, I think it already has. Um, in a positive way. The success of Orange is the New Black, for instance. 
I would say is arguably one of their biggest shows. Yeah, it might be their, their most successful. Yeah, and it's, I mean, a really brilliant show in terms of representation of women, people of colour. Also being good. Being good. It's a good TV yeah, show. Yeah. It's, really uh, it's got good writing, it's got good yeah, acting. it's excellent writing, it's excellent characters from all different backgrounds, and it's brilliantly acted. I think everybody that's on that show really does a good job. But Netflix have just uh, just released a series of unfortunate events, the adaptation of the, the Lemony Snicket novels of the early 2000s. Um, what did you think of that? I'm almost finished. I think I'm on episode five or six. There are eight? I think there, yeah, there are eight. There are eight. And it covers the first four books, if I'm not mistaken. I never read the books, but I did really enjoy the film that was made quite a while ago now. 2004, yeah. Um, anyone else liked it other than you <laughs> I really enjoyed it Meryl Streep, Billy yeah, Connolly Jude Law was Lemony Snicket I thought the kids were really Jim good Carey, in that one of course. Yeah, Jim, yeah obviously but yeah so the Netflix series covers the first four books whereas the, the film was only the first three it's starring Neil Patrick Harris as Count Olaf the, the yeah. malevolent uncle well not actually an uncle some distant, distant relative of the Baudelaire orphans um, whose parents were killed in a, in a tragic fire and he is tasked with, with looking after them but he has his uh, plans for their fortune he wants to take it away from them because he's bad what do you think of his performance in particular? I thought it was quite clear that he is a stage actor it was very camp very, yeah, very animated yeah which I like. I think it suits the character. I think it suits that kind of like caricature. You couldn't play that any other way, really. I don't think it has to be that. I mean, Jim Carrey is a very animated actor as well. He's a lot of physical comedy and making things sound funny, which I think I think Neil Patrick Harris does quite well. I do enjoy it. I'm not a fan of the theme song which he sings, which yeah. adapts over the episodes. I might add. You it, well, that? I've only seen the first one, but yeah, it's. It, this theme song is essentially telling you not to watch the show, yeah. which is very much in the spirit of uh, the Lemony Snicket novels, which were like, don't read these books because they're too upsetting. Which I find quite disconcerting about it. It's kind of it's quite jarring to constantly hear, "Look away, stop watching this." Mm. You could do anything else with your time. It kind of is asking for me to go. Yeah, okay, goodbye. I'm not gonna watch this. <laughs> See, and that was my, my issue with Neil Patrick Harris's performance and that I don't feel it captured that aspect of the show. Like he, he did well at being um, very sort of animated and a cartoonish kind of villain, but he didn't capture any of the kind of menace that I think the character of Count Olaf has. I never felt that the kids were actually in danger, just that there was this silly bad man. I was quite surprised that the series, it very quickly moves through the storylines which took up a whole film without I mean this doesn't really spoil anything but the first main event of the film was that Count Olaf tries to marry Violet the the oldest Baudelaire orphan in in a way to to get her fortune and that storyline is done with by the second episode so I was quite surprised at the pace with which they move through it and I think that possibly had something to do with the the lack of menace I did find them quite I mean, he's not a comfortable person to, to be around, but I, I'm i not totally thrilled at the, the pacing of the, the yeah, show. Yeah, they, they had more time than they did in the film, because the film is three books packed into, what, an hour and a half, two hours, and this is four books 
Yeah, I, I just have a, a distinct memory of the the film moving a bit softer. I think the TV show is quite everything just kind of happens mm-hmm. and it's kind of churning out stuff. But then I think it's also you kind of have to when I'm watching it now as a twenty two year old, a lot of the things are plainly obvious. And I'm kind of going, just look at it. It's obviously not what you think it is. Just think about it a little bit harder. But you kind of have to remember it was made for children. I don't know if that, maybe that, that kind of pacing, where you know, things are just sort of repeatedly happening, unfortunate events are repeatedly uh-huh. happening, is part of what the, the novel was trying, or the novels were trying to evoke. I don't know whether that makes for good television. But it's, it kind of reminds me of when I read uh, Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe and it was terminally boring I mean it's awful and it? <laughs> well maybe it's not awful it's the first it's essentially the first novel ever written um, arguably and it's so repetitive and things just keep happening over and over and over again and when I talked to a university professor about it they were like well that's because they're trying Daniel Defoe's trying to to give you the sense of what it would be like to live on a on a on a desert island with no food and stuff it would be a repetitive dull and unpleasant existence. But is that interesting storytelling? No. <laughs> it's about getting the right balance between what the show's about and how it's about it. You know, you can make something about mundane events. Um, not that a series of important events are mundane <laughs> events, but you can make it about that while still making it interesting through structure and how these events happen. I mean, watching the first episode of, of a series of important events, I don't know that it did that particularly well. I just kind of felt that it wasn't heading towards anything. Things were just happening, and the when the first episode ended, I had no desire really to watch the second. I didn't feel like it was going in any kind of direction. Neither did I, to be honest. The style that it's made in is very kind of CGI based. Almost nothing seems real, particularly in the first episode. Patrick, what's his face who plays Lemony Snicket? Patrick Warburton. Yeah. He he is. Um, CGI, he's behind a green screen or he's in front of a green screen and you know, <laughs> superimposed essentially into the scene so stuff is happening behind him and you know, it's clear that he's not there. For instance there's a bit where he's superimposed in and it's raining so the rain doesn't hit him mm. which I'm just not thr- like, it's not it's, like, I know that it's been done for a purpose but yeah, it's it not a purpose that a, I quite enjoy to be honest. As an omniscient narrator yeah. to not be quite involved in the I mean it's obviously why they've done that mm-hmm. it is a very sort of visual show like they've put a lot of effort and money into making it look yes. a certain stylized way it, very much unlike La La Land it doesn't seem like a real place at all yeah completely contrasting it's just not a type of uh, series that I would normally watch because of the way it's, it's yes. styled? I'm not, I, like, I don't watch Do animated want, films. Would you I, rather it were gritty realism? Yeah, or I'd rather that the, you know, the, the houses and the sets were made because you could build something to look fake and to look like a child fantasy whilst also knowing that it's real but rather than doing that, rather than paying people to actually craft something that feels lived in and real they've CGI'd everything and I just don't find that as cinematically interesting to watch I think I think it's interesting to watch I don't know whether that is because I only watched the first episode and there's a certain novelty to it that you might be able to appreciate 
on first first glance, but you might, you know, the sort of artificiality of it, even though it's not, you know, it's probably very good CGI, but there is a different feeling that CGI things have compared to compared to real life. Yeah, completely, and it do, it definitely makes it feel not real for me. Like mm. I don't feel too sorry for any of the characters because I've got a distance from it because it doesn't look like real life. So. I guess that's you know quite a good thing. You're not getting too heartbroken over this series of really unfortunate events. Yeah, but that is an interesting tension there in the show between that kind of artificiality and you don't you don't feel like it's a real place, and also there are these unpleasant things happening, and you're supposed to, you know, they want you to kind of feel that unpleasantness. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's intentional. Maybe the the stylized nature is a way of sort of mitigating that of not making it so unpleasant that people don't want to watch yeah, it. Yeah, possibly. It's possibly that it's, you know, it's been used as a tool. I just, it's, yeah, it's not something I would tend to watch, but I am powering through it. The novels, from what I remember, were in that kind of meta-ironic style as well, where there were um, depressing events happening, but the the narrative style kind of kept you out of a move from that. Yeah, I mean, it is very much, it's very meta. He's constantly, Lemony Snicket's constantly coming on screen and telling you another bad thing is about to happen. Stop watching now. And yeah, I don't know. That's not something I particularly respond to. But I I understand that it's through the, the writing of the novel. But it's also the, the series is a, you know, a reunited um, How I Met Your Mother cast members because, you know, Patrick Harris and Colby Smulders are in it. Joan Cusack's also in it. I don't know if she stays she's in it. She's in the first episode. Fantastic. She is really good. I, I like love Joan Cusack. And I think she's really good in this. She was, I mean, that was a real saving grace in the first episode to see somebody who was just, you knew that you were going to get fantastic yeah. results from. And I think she delivered big time. And she's excellent in the, the second episode specifically. Always an interesting performance. And I think she made it really accessible for children without alienating an adult like myself who doesn't really engage with children's television. Do you think it's for children? <sighs> but I, because I don't, I'm not a fan of animation or CGI. See, I, I, to me, it seems like children's television. Yeah. However, I know that a lot of people my age thoroughly enjoy that, like yourself. But I just, I, so I would immediately say it's for children. But I know it's not necessarily made for that audience. Um, what is it about it that you think is is particularly childlike? Is it the cartoonish nature of it? Yeah, the cartoonish CGI nature of it, and the, I mean, it's it's kind of inherent in the storytelling of it because it moves so fast, and they're you're kind of seeing it through the eyes of the Baudelaire children, who I mean, the oldest is fourteen in this series. So, I mean, there's only a certain amount of knowledge that comes with that, even although they're supposed to be the smartest children of the land. They continually get themselves into situations that I'd be like, just phone the police. Why are you paying attention to this Mr. Poe banker? Why is a banker in control of three orphans? I mean, it seems... I'm I'm willing my suspension of belief big time for this. Do you think that there's a difference between TV shows, for instance, that are for children and TV shows that are just badly plotted and paced? Like, are you just saying it's for children because you don't think something was done particularly well and children wouldn't mind? No, not at all, because I know that, I mean, I know that a lot of 
people our age and people older than us will thoroughly enjoy it. I you, just you really like the Harry Potter film. Yes. And a lot of them have those kind of issues. Well, I mean, I think I really enjoy the Harry Potter book series. Okay. I like the films because they bring it to life, and I'm one of the few people who really like Dan Radcliffe. But I know that the films. I mean, having read the books, I know that the films are nothing in comparison to the books and there's tons of plot holes in them but what I love because I'm not a sci-fi fan either because I find it too difficult to imagine a world where stuff apparently happens that I can't understand and it's the same with fantasy but Harry Potter I make an exception for because J.K. Rowling put so much effort into coming up with rules so you've got the Ministry of Magic that impose laws upon wizards and I think that's fantastic that's enough for me to go okay they can't do this because it would run out or it would disappear eventually or because it's against the law because the bad people would come and get them like there's reasons for things to happen whereas in a, a season fortunate events these rules aren't set up explicitly you're just supposed to I'm accept kind of, that yeah, this is trying how to figure out is. that a banker's in charge of three children who's an absolute idiot. Like, And I think whoever plays him is fantastic. He does a really good job of that. There's also, a, a, when they're deciding who the children are going to live with, they actually move to live with Count Olaf because he's their nearest living relative. As in closest. The closest, yeah, closest living relative. So they move to him because he's physically local. Um, which obviously would never happen in no. real life but you're supposed to just it's, go um, okay. it's K. Todd Freeman who plays Mr. Mr. Poe, Poe the, yeah. the banker and he does it very well but I really am infuriated by him I'm like would you just pay attention for God's sake it's clearly Count Olaf like, I mean I get really angry because I'm just like it's right there in front of <laughs> you like, okay so so we'll talk about uh, a more adult TV show. Um, I'll say that with inverted commas, of course. Uh, this is us is a is a TV show that's on in America. I can't remember the channel. Um, uh, it premiered on NBC. NBC. Um, it's getting a lot of buzz at the moment. I've seen quite a lot of people talking about it and going, "This is." Well, it was uh, nominated Netflix. in the Golden Globes for TV drama. Um, Good that you give it a little fanfare there. I think. I, I, think I just I was I was stalling for a time. Um, this is us was beat by the crown for best television series drama, and it was also. I mean, the other nominees were Westworld, Stranger Things, and Game of Thrones. Hmm. So it was quite a competitive category there. Yeah, definitely. Um, but this is something that I never heard people mention until recently. Some people seem to be really getting into it. You've watched the whole thing, haven't you? I've only seen the first episode. I've so watched far. the first ten episodes. I'm just seeing now that there's twelve, so I've maybe not watched. And maybe they're not out, but uh, yeah. So it's a family drama, I would say. Family uh, drama is how it was described on. Yeah. Like, it's hard to talk about it without giving away. Um, you know, to talk about what the show is without giving away a spoiler. Yeah, there's a big twist at the end of the first episode that kind of turns everything you thought you knew on its head because it follows the lives of uh, five kind of main characters and the first episode sets it up and you don't really know how they're connected and then it is revealed in a very interesting way yeah very I think it's, yeah, I think it's very well done um, it was very well paced I think that first episode um, yeah because they, they, they did a lot with their 45 minutes or however long they had and never felt rushed but they did manage to um, 
to flesh out these characters. Yeah, I think it's done very well. I think it's all the characters seem very real and very full and deep and you kind of are allowed to see throughout the course of the series why they are the way that they are and it touches on a lot of different issues but yeah it's good it's a good cast with a few people that I've never seen before Chrissy Metz Justin Hartley Sterling K Brown all of whom were most of the cast were nominated in the Golden Globes as well um, what do you think that one of them or several of them really stood out across the series? I think I um I think they all do to an extent. I, I because I think it's I think it's very well written, and the characters are so deep. They're really portrayed very well. It does seem like a real kind of holistic effort of a TV show, although it's very fragmented in the story. It all fits together really nicely and it seems like the kind of thing that the cast are quite close on it seems like the the artistic team and the people that are actually on screen kind of have a really nice working relationship that's how it comes across anyway because it does really fit together and flow very nicely and it does it is paced really well and I think they give enough time to each moment without overdoing it I would say throughout the series it is quite cheesy, but I really enjoy cheesy television. So. Okay. Yeah, I think it's kind of. I mean, we compared it to to a soap, but it's kind of like a soap in that it's about kind of the average person, but it's done in, in quite a sophisticated. Yeah, I mean, it's way. your typical American TV drama, much like Gilmore Girls is the example that that comes to mind. But it is very well told, I think. Yeah. Certainly, get. I mean, I only got that impression from the first episode, but, but yeah, it seems very well made. I'm yeah. I've having seen ten. I'm kind of constantly gripped, and I'm eager to find out more of what happens because the story really develops in a way that's you're constantly asking questions and finding out answers, and then hearing more information that makes you kind of wonder what what's coming next. And it's very touching, as I find most. Most most American TV dramas are that too. Yeah, I think um, I think there's I think people are too easy to diss when something sounds nice. Like one line to me can just completely blow me away. And we talked about that in La La Land when she says this mm-hmm. could kill me. And I think there's countless points. I mean, probably one every episode of This Is Us that just really hits home and of course you get the really cheesy one where somebody goes you know this is us and you're like right okay like that was too far but I think when they kind of allude to that idea without actually saying the title of the show that is really moving to me I like that you uh, I mean you say that that's a quality of American TV shows do you think that's an American thing do we not have that in Britain I think British television is very different because we've got a different kind of humour and we're more I mean, everybody talks about, like, you know, your classic British problems, that we're very polite, so we'll apologise for anything. I think there's a... Not that I'm qualified to say this at all, but I think Britain is a bit more afraid of saying what it feels, almost. Mm-hmm. I think it's harsher than... and more removed than American television. Maybe there's more, uh, there's more of a sort of cynicism compared to an American yeah. sincerity. 
I, don't know, I remember hearing a, um, a theory about the difference between America and Britain is that the people that America is composed of the people who moved away from Britain and decided well, um, we're going we're gonna to go over there, we're going to cross the ocean and try and find a better life. So the people that were really optimistic and thought that things could be better, whereas the people that are in Britain <laughs> are the people who decided oh, we're just actually going to stay here. We, know we don't really like the weather that much. Yeah. It's probably even worse over there. So the gene pool here is I, really well, sort of I conservative and afraid. Uh, whereas yeah, over there, they're it's really optimism, yeah. aspirational. I think, yeah, yeah, it's possibly quite a good anecdote for... The, the difference between um, British and American television but I mean I think that's uh, I mean a good example is The Office which obviously started yeah. in the UK and um, it's still Jim and Pam in the UK office isn't it? Is it? I've never seen the American one but uh, yeah Jim and Pam in the UK one because so. I've seen bits and pieces of the UK one but not the full thing but they only just hint at getting together at the end of the UK office Whereas the American office is full of their entire love story and they get married and have children and it's, I mean, it's much more gushy and emotional and cheesy than what it would be in the the UK office. But that's the kind of, I, I much prefer the, the American office to the UK one mm. because it's got that sentimentality, which I really enjoy, but I'm a very sentimental person. So I really enjoy the sentimentality of it. But... I think that's just because that's what I watched when I was kind of growing up. I wonder how how This Is Us in particular would be different if it were made in, in the UK. Do you think it would be a bit less, um, I don't know, optimistic or, or sentimental? Yeah, and I think, you know, talking about um, the, the difference between America and Britain, I think, there's a real fundamental difference in weather in that <laughs> to me I mean I'm a huge fan of American television and what seems so distancing is that we live in a land of grey and they live in a land of yellow is what it comes across like anyway I mean other than Grey's Anatomy which is about the only TV show I watch in America that is set in a rainy city <laughs> the rest of them are all really sunshine and daisies and I think that does have an, an effect on the kind of drama you make because mm. it's not quite as dark and gloomy aesthetically than it would be over here I don't even I don't know what it would be like over here my parents watched it, I watched the first episode with my parents and they said oh it's very American isn't it and I was like I don't really know what that means but Was that a Christmas or I, I think it was yeah they yeah they're not sentimental like that but that's the other thing I think Americans are more set in tradition you know they're quite I mean Thanksgiving and Christmas like that kind of holiday period for them is very much based in tradition like you know they've got the Macy's parade Thanksgiving parade every year they do the Black Friday thing every year and it's kind of very much out of habit and I think that's what a lot of family dramas um, in the US focus on. It's that um, kind of ritual aspect of of living in America, I think. I don't know. It's hard to say. If only we had an American here to ask, it's hard to say from the point of view of an observer. Oh, it totally. Like... That the, the perhaps they're not so much into ritual, and it's just that we see it more. Um, yeah. 
I mean, we're only seeing what they put out, exactly. but that doesn't mean that that is the real life of any American. Um, but I, yeah, I think... It's look, not that everyone in Britain slavishly adores the Queen, but if you were very much in America, not, yeah. perhaps, you know, you might hear quite a bit about the Queen. Yeah, you the other thing is that Americans appear role. to believe that uh, the whole of Britain has one accent. Yeah. <laughs> it's very awfully like that. And, yeah, that just drives me insane. Um, but I, I, can, I couldn't answer what This Is Us would be like if it was a British because it wouldn't be what it is. It, yeah. it kind of seems to be set what it's set and that's possibly why I like it so much. And I don't particularly watch a lot of British television because I just like the idea that there's sunshine <laughs> You like you've started watching Black Mirror, haven't you? I've seen three or four episodes of Black Mirror, and I find it, I love it, but it's very difficult to watch. Hmm. So I I watched the first episode of the first season years ago when it first came out, and was loved it, but was obviously quite disgusted. Um, that's the one where the the prime minister has sex with a pig. But it's really interesting. And I love the commentary it is on technology taking over. And even as we're sitting here, my laptop screen goes to that black mirror where I can see myself and I'm like clicking it away because I'm like, I need it to be alive. And I think the second episode of Black Mirror is one that I couldn't even finish because it kind of haunted me so much. When Jordan and I went to get uh, food before we started the podcast, we were talking about if robots ended up uh, ruling the world. And the second episode of Black Mirror is about... Um, this guy who's in it's almost like a gym but that's where he lives and you have to accrue a certain amount of points in order to be allowed to do certain things and you accrue points by like working out and cleaning and all that kind of and it's just it really jarred me and I couldn't finish the episode so I don't even know what the conclusion was because I've just never gone back to watch it Um, and then I watched White Bear which is horrifying absolutely horrifying that's an episode of Black Mirror uh huh I think it was season 2 and it's got the most British actress's name in it you'll ever hear Tuppence Middleworth she's very good it's extremely bizarre she's fantastic in it and it's a really horrifyingly scary heart wrenching heart racing episode it just honestly gives you the fear and then you're like oh my god I'm in the twist at the end of that it's like nothing you've ever seen before but then they released the third season and uh, they had a gay episode which was wonderful and it was called San Junipero and it was about these two women getting together in an odd time. I won't go too much into it because I barely understand it. But it was really, it was it was lovely. It was very well done and it was very happy and it was the only Charlie Parker Black Mirror episode that seemed to be uplifting um, which the LGBT community were thrilled about. Um, and it had Heaven as a Place on Earth as the, the soundtrack of it, so everyone was happy. It was... That sounds like the kind of thing you'd like. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it was very sentimental. Like, there was a really happy ending and, you know, it was all... It was really good. And that was the episode that I loved the most. But it was very sentimental and mm. lovely and easy to watch and, and entirely unlike Black Mirror. I'm going to check it out because I've never actually watched Black Mirror, but I really like Charlie Brooker's work. Um, and now it's on Netflix it's all very easily accessible yeah. and it, I mean it's very very good it's just also the most horrifying thing you'll ever want <laughs> I'm looking forward to it 
uh, I think that just about wraps us up for this episode. Yeah. How do you think your, your first episode went? I'll wait to hear it back. <laughs> I'll, yeah, reserve judgment. But okay. I enjoyed it, well, whether uh, or not it sounded good. If you have any, if you have any feedback about mine or Poppy's performance, um, or any any interesting things to share, any thoughts about anything we've talked about, or, or about anything you'd like to talk, yeah. for us to talk about, exactly, we're open um, to suggestions. Oh, I just want to say hello. We're both very lonely. <laughs> um, if you'd like to befriend any one of us, that's really what the podcast is about. Is um, yeah, it's a. a tool for us to make to have more friends yeah, yeah. So get some attention it's a really I mean a cry for help is, is what, what it may be called I didn't put that in the description of anything I clearly had no idea what I was getting into yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so should you wish to get in contact please do via the Facebook page via Twitter um, at quite useless pods also on Instagram uh, or by email if you use that old fashioned method of communication I quite am fond of the email I didn't think email was such a big thing until I sort of became an adult, got involved uh-huh. in the adult world, and it is the way of communicating. Yeah, and there's so many emails I start, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to respond to your email. <laughs> yeah, so I, I've got some emails to respond to today. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, D, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that was the, the third episode of the Quite Useless Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it.